We've entitled it Accepting the Truth or Consequences. God has chosen in his sovereignty to reveal himself to man. He did not have to do that. He has chosen to do it. And one of the ways he has chosen to do it is through the word of God. Another way he has chosen to do it is through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is we who have been made in the image and the likeness of God. And yet, inevitably, from generation to generation, from century to century, from millennial to millennial, man continues to try to make God into the image and likeness of man. That is so evident from the book of Romans, the very first chapter. As he goes on and talks about the wrath of God in which even though we have been, God has been known to man, man professing himself to be wise changes the incorruptible God into the likeness of corruptible man. And I begin with that thought because as we get into our text this morning, there are some very challenging things about the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you obviously can see, Pilate did not accept them. The crowd did not accept them. The Jews did not accept them. And today, men and women, boys and girls, are faced with the same struggles and are not coming to Christ because of the same things. We have concluded our mini-series on church unity. We've been through the missions conference, and now we're back into the book, in case you forgot, the Gospel according to John. And as we come back to the book where we left off, and it was back in March that we did that, we left off in chapter 18, and we actually pick it up here in verse 1 of chapter 19. But let me just give you a brief setting just from chapter 18. As we finish that chapter, if you just scan it with me, in the first two verses we saw that he had started, that is the Lord Jesus Christ started on his course to the cross of Calvary. That's where he's going. We find him in Gethsemane. It is followed up in verses 3 through 11 by the fact that Jesus is betrayed and arrested. After his prayer, he was betrayed and arrested, and then he faced various trials beginning in verse 12. In between there, you have the denials of Peter. But more recently, in verses 15 particularly, and then on down with a couple of breaks in between, down to verse 27 roughly, is where you have that denial. And then you have the civil trials beginning in verse 33. And in those civil trials, as he's brought before, I'm sorry, He's going to the civil trials now. Those, that was the religious trials where he was before uh, the Sanhedrin and all of that took place. He's now going to be brought before the civil authorities. And in verses 38 to 40, as we closed out the chapter, I entitled the message, and I'm only going back to the title because of the one that I have today. The truth is that man is without excuse before God. And in there, we saw that Pilate, we saw Herod, we saw the crowd, we saw that Barabbas all knew that this was an innocent man, and yet they were exposed to the truth and did not accept it. And we're going to see more of Pilate today. And we're still continuing with the concept of truth today 
as we go into chapter 19. And as I made a simple outline for you, you can see the Lord Jesus Christ, we say there, is king, he's God, and he's savior. That's very simple outline. But still, there are many who do not see Jesus Christ as God. They do not see him as king. And while they may claim him to be savior, he may or may not be their savior because of the way they come to him. But there are opportunities that are given over and over again to people to hear the truth. And some of you today may be hearing it for the first time. Others may have heard it over and over again. But I want you to pay attention to the fact that, for example, Pilate himself is being exposed to truth that he knows is true. And he knows the innocence of the Lord Jesus Christ, but has some hang-ups because of a number of reasons that keep him from coming to accept who Jesus Christ really is. So let's jump into our text. The truth is, as I have in your outline, first of all, that Jesus Christ is king. In fact, we know from the scriptures that he is king of kings. He is over all kings that ever have been, ever will be, and he is king and in control of the universe. Pilate has already found him not guilty. And most recently, if you just look at chapter 18 and verse 38 at the end of the verse, you see it very clearly. Pilate saw that Jesus Christ was not guilty of any offense. So that we've learned that by the standards of Moses, by the standards of the rabbinical law at this stage, by the standards of Herod, who he was sent to as a reminder, and also by the standards of the civil government under the jurisdiction of Pilate, he is innocent. He is not guilty of anything. He should have been released. There was no question about it. It should have ended and been over. We should never come to chapter 19, verse 1, from man's perspective. And yet, we see, though he says he's innocent, in chapter 18 and verse 38, he still has a hang-up because he wants to be politically correct because he wants to appease those around him. And there are probably some in this audience that have not yet come to Christ because they're afraid of relatives or they're afraid of religion or they're afraid of something else. That's where Pilate was. He knew the innocence of Jesus Christ. He had been exposed to the truth of Jesus Christ. And he knows that he's innocent. And yet notice the action that he takes beginning in verse 1 of chapter 19. Verses, just verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus, an innocent man here, and scourged him. He took him and scourged him. Now that's just something for us to bounce over initially when we look at it. Roman citizens, just for your understanding, were exempt from scourging. And they were exempt from scourging, not that Jesus Christ is a Roman citizen. That's not what I'm saying. But I want you to understand when we just bounce over this term, they were exempt because of the viciousness that was involved in the scourging of an individual. And I just want to give you a little insight into it so you understand 
even physically. Not only is he going to be separated from the father and have that situation that we will deal with later in the chapter, but physically the Lord Jesus Christ, an innocent man, faced tremendous physical pain. This was done by well-trained soldiers. Some of them, that was their only job, as we go back and study. And they were trained to give maximum pain. They knew how to inflict it. And when it came to a scourging, this was not the long whip that they would use. It was a short handle, approximately a foot, some shorter. And they would have this handle and many leather stripes or lashes, as they called them, would be attached to this wooden handle. And at the end of every strip of leather, there would either be glass, metal, bone, or some other sharp, small object. And the reason was to inflict as much pain as possible. The victim would be taken aside, stripped totally, and they would take him by his hands. And they would take a rope around the hands and they would extend the body off the ground so that the feet could not touch the ground and there could be no relief. They would take the whip and diagonally come across the body. I just want you to understand the pain and suffering that Christ had for us. The skin was torn so badly that on most occasions the muscles and even the internal organs such as the kidneys would be damaged. The lacerations were deep. And I chose to just read a very brief excerpt from Josephus who witnessed many a scourging to just give you an idea that this was just not a whipping that you kind of see on TV and it was just a couple of lashes and that was it. It's not what happened. Josephus records witnessing one of the scourgings and I'll just get right to the point. As this person was brought to the Roman procurator, what happened was as they scourged him, they scourged him and I quote, till his bones were laid bare. There was no skin left. And by the way, this man that he referred to as he goes on in the story was still alive. That is the type of scourging that was given to the Lord Jesus Christ. An innocent man. Someone who had come to the world out of God's love and had been rejected by man's standards. But that's not the end, that's the beginning. He turns him over and that is what the Lord Jesus Christ faces. That type of whipping from a trained soldier. When that is done, verse two, the second action that's taken is the soldiers twist together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. We don't know for sure. The best that I could do in the reading that I did is they figure that it was probably a date palm because of the availability of that type of plant and the thorns associated with it. If that is so, 
The date palm spikes of thorns could be as long as 12 inches. Some of them were smaller. And what they did is they twisted it and they stuck it into the head of Jesus Christ. Now, I think it was part of the plan of God. Even that physical part? Yes. Why? Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. I want you to just see, in my personal opinion, just how overwhelming the evidence is of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us. Many are familiar with the story of Adam and Eve, and in Genesis chapter 3, we come to the fall of man, disobedience, sin. Now, I will start with myself. There, I don't believe, is a person in this room that takes sin as serious as we should, starting with me. We sin, we confess it, we fail to see the ramifications of sin. But when Adam and Eve sinned, we as men and women were separated from God. With nothing in our own ability to make it possible to be restored by human effort. And throughout all the ages from Adam down to July 1st, 2012, God has allowed man to see the evidences and the seriousness of sin. And there isn't a one of us in this room that have not seen it. And he made it very practical. What do you mean, Pastor Dan? I will just concentrate only for time's sake on verses 16 and 17. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Let me just simplify this this morning by saying this. Since Eve to today, women still see the physical evidence and the visual evidence of this curse. And so do the men. And I want you to look at the next verse. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I command you, saying you shall not eat from it. That's where sin entered in. Through man we learn from scriptures and Romans. Now watch. Cursed is the ground because of you. And from Adam and Eve to this day, the ground evidences the curse and the seriousness of sin. And watch what he says. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. And watch verse 18. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat of the plants of the field. Part of the curse 
because of man's sin was the thorns and the thistles. And the crown of thorns was no mistake. He entirely bore the curse for Almighty God and the penalty of sin. Turn with me to your responsive reading. Go with me to Galatians chapter 3. They, as soldiers, were not thinking of Genesis chapter 3. They, as soldiers, were just doing what they always do, prepare to crucify another human being, to scourge another human being, and in this particular case, to mock him because he's a king. And little did they know, in, and I put it this way, in my personal opinion, that the crown of thorns was absolutely the plan of God because of the curse of Genesis chapter 3. And in Galatians chapter 3, I want you to notice this. It talks about the cross, but I want you to see it. Just to write to the heart of it, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Yes, the curse of the law. So not only the curse of the law, why we cannot keep it, the law is perfect and holy, reflects the righteousness of God. We can't keep that. So he's even redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, and that is you and I today, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Jesus Christ not only redeemed us from the curse of the law, he redeemed us from the entire curse that was put in the universe, including that which was put on a land by bearing the thorns in his head. Not that that redeemed the land. But they're waiting for the day of redemption when Christ comes back still. The world is still crying out for that. These things that Jesus Christ suffered, the scourging and the thorns, were all part of the mighty plan of God. And that's how much he loved you. And that's how much he loved me. Every single aspect of God's creation was born by Christ. Now, in saying that, I don't want to be thought of as a person saying that the soul is a soul with uh, the land or anything like that. So don't think I think that at all. But what I'm showing you is the fact that even with a crown of thorns, I believe, and even being on the tree, what you've got is the Lord Jesus Christ bearing it all. But no mistake, he became a curse. He was mocked. Go back to John. The third thing is he's mocked. They put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. They're mocking him. But that's who he is. And there are people that are mocking. If you watch TV programs, if you watch people in the street talk, if you listen to society, they mock Jesus Christ. Many curse with his name, and yet he is king of the Jews. 
But the concept of him being a king would keep even people like Pilate and keep even people like the religious leaders and others from coming to Christ. Oh, people might want to say that Jesus Christ is a prophet, he's a good man, but king? Yes, he is. And the last thing they do by their actions is found in verse 3. The fourth thing that they do is they not only mock him, but they turn around and they slap him in the face. And that term can mean, and I believe it does, they gave him blows to the face. Or they gave him blows, and the implication is from that word to the face. They didn't just give him love taps. The Lord Jesus Christ, even physically, and I don't want you to get all focused on the physical only, but I also don't want you to overlook it, the cost. He is a king. As a result, what we find in these first few verses is he has been beaten unjustly. He's still innocent. He still has no sin. But folks, this is a picture of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I know you could quote it, but turn there. As we prepare for communion, turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 21. I have to go back to 20. We're ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And I went back to that verse because I wanted to get the end of it. To God. Why? Because it is God who made him. This is all part of the sovereignty of God. He made him who knew no sin, that is Jesus Christ, to be sin on our behalf. The consequence of sin is death. Or the wages of sin is death. Jesus Christ had to bear that. And he bore the curse in every single aspect of it. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. First Peter puts it this way, that he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That we being dead to sin should be made alive. By his stripes, that have a different meaning to you? By his stripes we were healed. He bore it all. Jesus Christ, innocent. Yes. So what have you got? Even listen to this for application for a second. You come across trials in your life and you wonder what's going on. Here is Jesus Christ suffering injustice. Yes. Is it a mistake? No. It's part of the eternal plan of God. Without this sacrifice, without this suffering, without this going to the cross in God's eternal plan, there would be no salvation. And it's only found in this man. Sometimes we go through things in life and we claim injustice. We forget to look at what God is doing. No wonder we find the results in verses 4 to 6. Pilate came out again to him. Now you can imagine just from what I've described, the physical condition of Jesus Christ having been scourged, having those thorns stuck into his head, having been punched in the face. And Pilate brings him out and says, Behold, I bring him out to you again. Now watch these 
I believe words that he will regret for all eternity. I want you to know I find no guilt in him. Again, he says that. Jesus came out wearing the crown and the thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Yes, this is God, very God, but it's also a man. Jesus Christ is not to be made into our image in likeness and who we think he might just be as a nice man or a religious figure or someone to follow. We're going to see in just a moment. He is God, very God, but he came and he took on flesh and he's fully man and he fully experienced sorrows and pain and suffering unlike you and I will ever experience. And he is indeed, you know, the kids have an expression today, or young people, or there's been the expression, you're the man. No. There isn't any athlete. There isn't any parent. There isn't any guy that's the man apart from Jesus Christ. When he said, behold the man, that was right terminology. He is the man of all ages. He is the only man, fully God, fully man, selected by God. Pilate's took, taking him out, by the way, to look for pity. But notice, while he knows that he's innocent, is it possible that you've heard messages about Jesus Christ today, and you've heard that he's the Savior? We haven't got to that part of it yet, but you've heard that he was the one sent by God to bear the penalty and price for sin, but under the pressure of other people, you just won't come to him because you're afraid of what your relatives might think. You're afraid of what somebody else might think. That's where Pilate was. Pilate turned around, and he says he's innocent. And in verse 6, the chief priest in the offices, the religious people of the day, do you know that today Christians are being ridiculed by religious leaders? And those that are interested in multiculturalism and multi-religions and everybody being accepted don't want the narrowness of Christianity. And that is happening in our country. And under that pressure, sometimes we back away. That's what Pilate did. They cry out, crucify, crucify. He was pressured by the authorities. He was pressured by the crowd. Pressured by the religious leaders. And while he accepts the fact that he recognizes that he was called the king, he won't accept him as his king, that is Pilate. So he tries to put it away and say, take him yourselves and crucify him. And there he is again, for I find no guilt in him. Jews said, we have a law. And what is it? That by the law, he ought, to be, he ought to die. Why? Because he made himself out to be the son of God. Jesus Christ is not only king, he is God. No, Pastor Dan, you read it wrong. He said the son of God. Absolutely. And they knew exactly what he was saying. By saying the Son of God, they knew. Let me remind you of two verses alone just in this book. Go back to John chapter 5 for just a moment. 
There are the arguments. There's man professing himself to be wise again in theological circles. There are the religions that say that he is the son of God, but he's not God. That is absolute ignorance. He never claimed to be God. Yes, he did. Just look at the I am statements we've already studied in John. But go back to John chapter 5. Look at verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking the more to kill him. Why? Here it is. Because he had not only was breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his father, that is, that he was the son of God, doing what? Making himself what? Equal with God. It is very possible in this audience, there's people that are saying, yeah, I, I want to believe that Jesus is my Savior and he can take me to heaven, but I cannot get to the state to believe that Jesus is God. If you don't understand that Jesus is God, you haven't got the right Savior. Jesus clearly said that he and his Father were one. Go with me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. By the way, let me read verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one else is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Verse 33. The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself. Did Jesus Christ ever claim to be God? You make yourself out to be God. Stop listening to the critics. Stop listening to the quote-unquote theologians that know better. I had a phone call. I don't to this day know who the guy is. But I had a phone call one time because of what is on the website regarding this doctrine of Jesus Christ. And this person on the other end of the phone gave me a lesson in Greek and Hebrew. It's a fact. And he went on in Greek and Hebrew and told me how ignorant I was because Jesus Christ never claimed to be God. And I clearly took him through John, and the conversation just finally ended. But he thought I was a fool. He may be smart and know more Hebrew and Greek than I know. doesn't matter. There are people that might know more than you know intellectually. Jesus Christ himself made it very clear that he was God, very God, right from the birth when God quoted and said, this is God with us, Emmanuel. Pilate couldn't go that far. The Jews couldn't go that far. I will accept that Jesus Christ is a man, but king, not our king. God, not our God. No wonder we find these words of Pilate's. What is it? Verse 8. When he heard this, he was more afraid. He should have been. But sad as it is, folks, while he's frightened, he's more afraid of man. And he won't come to look at the man that he's about to condemn, who he knows is innocent, and he won't look to him as his king, and he won't look to him as his God. What is it that's keeping you from Christ? 
The evidence was overwhelming that Pilate had. He wanted to deliver him, but he didn't. And by the way, look at verse 11 for a second. In verse 11, it says, you have no, you have no authority over me. Imagine that, his Pilate saying to him, look, don't you know I could crucify you, whatever? He says, you, you haven't got anything at all. Talk about the sovereignty of God. Unless it's been given to you from above. Jesus Christ, through all this suffering and pain that happened in verses 1 and 2, through all this mockery that happened in verse 3, through what the crowd's crying out for in verses 5 and 6 as he stands before them, then goes before Pilate back into the praetorium, according to verse 8, doesn't give him any answer other than you have no authority whatsoever unless it's been given to you from basically his father. And then he says this, for this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Let me say a couple of things about that. Number one, there are degrees of sin. Oftentimes we say sin is sin is sin is sin. Let me explain something to you. It only takes one sin to keep you out of heaven. The consequences of sin, whatever it is, lying, cheating, murder, adultery, one violation of God's law is a violation of the entire law so you're guilty of sin. But don't think for one moment that some sins don't carry greater consequences. That's true in our society, although sometimes it's backwards. The reality is if somebody is involved in thievery, they get one type of sentence. Somebody commits murder, it's a greater sentence. Yeah, but that's not true biblically. Yes, it is. Jesus Christ said so. The one that's turned you over has greater sin than you. He says in the Gospels, doesn't he not, as he's scathing the Pharisees and Sadducees, he said it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than it is for you. Had they had the evidence you have, they would have repented. Now why say that? This audience has more evidence and more knowledge of the scriptures about who Jesus Christ is fully disclosed in the word of God, and Pilate had it. And if you don't come to Christ with the evidence that you have, the punishment could be greater in hell than for somebody else. Separation from God, yes. Feeling the punishment greater, I believe yes. And by the way, who's he referring to? I don't think he's referring to Judas Iscariot. Most people interpret it that way. Judas Iscariot didn't deliver them. Say, yes, he did in the garden. No, no, he's referring to the one that delivered him to Pilate. It's probably Caiaphas. The high priest is more than likely in the immediate context who he's talking about. He's the one that turned him over to Pilate to get it done. He's the one that's leading this riot, if you will, to have Jesus crucified. And now he makes efforts to release him. And then, as you read, because they now refer to the last aspect, and that is that it will be opposed to Caesar. I end with verses 12 through 16 quickly. Jesus Christ is Savior. Yes, he is King of Kings. Yes, he is God, very God. And he is the Savior of the world. And in all these cases, if you look over verses 13 to 16 very quickly, you will see that now he's not only pressured by 
the leadership there, and he's been pressured by knowing that this guy's claiming to be God. He's now pressured by them claiming that you're no friend of Caesar's, basically. He's been pressured socially. He's been pressured economically right now with his position. And sometimes that's what keeps people from Christ. Loss of a job. Loss of friendship with family. Job security. And he still won't do the right thing. And so what happens is he has his final plea to them, shall I crucify your king? And they say, away with him. Can you imagine what it will be like for Pilate to one day stand before Christ again? And now Christ is his judge. Can you imagine what it's going to be like for these leaders, Caiaphas, Judas Iscariot, we're told it would be better that he never lived. Stand before God, had the opportunity to release him, had the opportunity to recognize him, had the opportunity to believe on him, and they will stand before him and be cast into eternal hell fire in the lake of fire for all eternity by the one they called out for crucifixion. Can you imagine what it'll be like, my friend, for you? With all the evidence that God's given, with the fact that he says he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, who's Jesus Christ, because we can't save ourselves, who had him bear the curse of our sin on the cross, in the thorns, in his life, and as he bore the penalty and pressure of that sin and the rejection of the Father, the Father was satisfied that the penalty's been paid. And you stand there and try to say, well, I tried to be as religious as I could be. I tried to go as church, to church as much as I could. I was, I was so afraid of the people at work. I was so afraid of what my neighbors would think of me. And my parents and my relatives, I would have been cast out of my family. And for that sake, I wouldn't trust in Christ. Can you imagine what it's going to be like for you when you stand before Christ and Christ says, away from me, I never knew you. Does that have to be? No. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. But there is no one that can come unto the Father except it be through him. And it is you by faith who have to trust in Jesus Christ. I guarantee you this. If you're here today and haven't trusted in Christ, oh, you've played religion. Let me, let's say you've come here for 40 years to Fellowship Bible Church. And you've treated church like a mass, where you just go and do an obligation, where you know all the facts. But you've never come to trust in Christ in your heart. You still can't get yourself for whatever reason. Guarantee you this, you won't forget the evidence that you've been given when you stand before Christ because you will be without excuse and you will face eternity in hell. Our heart's prayer, my heart's prayer, is that you come to see that Jesus Christ is King of Kings. He bore. He suffered this physically, and he suffered in the sense spiritually to bear that penalty 
so that we could have life. And as you read in the responsive reading, and I won't go back to it in Galatians, the just shall live by faith. And just like Abraham believed God, God's requirement is simply that you believe his message. And that is that he so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believe in him, what does it mean to believe in him? Who he is and what he did on our behalf bore the curse. You believe on him, and as 2 Corinthians said, you will have the righteousness of God. God will declare you righteous, not because of who you are, but because of what Jesus Christ did and your faith in that alone. And I'll guarantee you this. If you trust in Christ, the day will come which you will be in the presence of Christ for all eternity. And you will remember that it wasn't anything that you did, but it was because you placed faith in his son. And you will spend eternity with God and Christ for all eternity if you believed on him. Don't succumb to the pressure today. What is it that's keeping you from Christ? Is it political, religious, economical? None of that cuts it. Those are only excuses. Come to Christ and see that he is the only savior. There is no religion, no church, no relative that can save, only Jesus Christ. As we come to this communion, you're welcome to participate in the communion if you've trusted in Christ. And if you haven't, you can trust in Christ right there in your pew right now. Believers, as we partake together, just reflect on the pain and suffering and how the Lord Jesus Christ bore our sin and that one day we will stand forgiven because of what he did for me, for you personally. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father in God, I thank you and praise you for your love in sending your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And though he was king of kings, lord of lords, even standing before Pilate as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, he opened not his mouth because he knew that you were in control and he had to go through with your will as he had prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. Not his will, but your will be done. And Father, we're so thankful and grateful that he followed through and suffered the penalty and pain of sin to every degree so that we could be freed from the curse of the law, from the curse of sin and death, and have our sins forgiven. Thank you for the many in this room that have come to Christ. And as we come to this communion table, help us to reflect on what you have done for us. Father, if there be one soul in this room that has not trusted in Christ, that they might see the seriousness of what they've heard this morning. That as we come to this time of year of independence, that they might see that they have no freedom whatsoever from the bondage of sin and death unless they come through Jesus Christ. And might they trust in your son who not only died, but was resurrected from the dead to get victory over the grave. And one day will return to this earth to take us home to glory. Might they trust in him right there in the pew. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.